0: So the question this morning is, how are we as the church really supposed to operate? That is, what are the various job descriptions for the leaders and the laity, the pastors and the people and others in the body of Christ? And if the church is actually to be a unified fellowship of, uh, comprised of gifted and individually different members, then how do each of these particular components work and fit together to both grow the body and to glorify the living head of the body, which is Jesus Christ. Listen, I believe this is precisely Paul's point behind Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. This is church 101 this morning. From our text, the Apostle Paul, under the direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit, reminds his readers, even through God's providential preservation of the Scriptures, us here today, that leaders are raised up to help members to be built up so that the church collectively might grow up in Christ. Let me say that again as this statement is going to set the trajectory behind everything else that follows this morning. Leaders are raised up by the gracious head, Jesus Christ, for the purpose of building up the membership of the body of Christ, for them to do their work so that the church collectively might grow up into maturity, into the image of Jesus Christ. The late pastor and theologian by the name of Howard Hendricks, and maybe some of you, Howard Hendricks, uh, some of you know him, uh, connected to Dallas Seminary. I think he actually spoke at one of our graduations at Liberty years ago. He once said that the church is too much like a football game: fifty thousand people in the stands, desperately in need of exercise, watching twenty-two people on the field, desperately in need of rest. <laughs> He had a powerful way of putting things. But I think his point is quite evident. It is that the church has become, for many, simply a spectator sport. When God has declared it and designed it to be, He has declared it and designed it to be a team effort, not a spectator sport. Ministry, in many ways, has been wrested out of the hands of the congregation and monopolized by a few men deemed to be the professional Christians, what we might call today pastors. And listen, the unintended consequences of the professionalization of Christian ministry very often sees the few exhaustedly serving, while the many are exasperatedly sitting idly on the sidelines. And this is not the way God intended it to be. Something is wrong with that picture. Churches are filled today with immature, immobilized, and often impotent believers who struggle from Sunday to Sunday, often feeling like the only part of Christ's body that they could possibly be is the appendix. Pointless and expendable. Maybe you felt that way. Consequently, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16, I may suggest to you this morning, is an urgent and necessary corrective to a contemporary church crisis. In fact, one well-known pastor that I often listen to and enjoy listening to on occasion says this, quote, I'm more convinced than ever that if there's a message the church of the 21st century needs to hear, it's the message of Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. We've come on hard times in which the church is treated more like a corporation or an institution than a body of believers or a family of the faithful. Pastors today act more like CEOs than they do shepherds. Some even prefer that title. Many church growth methods and leadership techniques are modeled after corporate America. We must allow Ephesians 4 to remind us that the church is not a corporation Rather, the church is a family, close quote, and amen to that. In other words, the work of the church is the Christ-appointed, spirit-enabled, God-exalting business of every single believer, not simply just the paid staff or the pastors. There is no one who is expendable here this morning. To cite our true church growth axiom for this morning, again, I'll say it, leaders are raised up to help members be built up so that the church might grow up in Christ effectively and wonderfully. As Paul, here he states, builds uh, this gracious blessing of Christ's crucified and risen and ascended, whereby he specifies gifts. Gifts with a specific goal leading to a beautiful God-honoring uh, result, namely the growth of the body of Christ. Well, there are four points this morning. I want to begin with today uh, helping us to notice something actually quite obvious, but something that's often forgotten. And it's found in the first three uh, words in our English Bibles of Ephesians 4, verse 11. Note those words with me. And he... Gave, And he gave. Our first point this morning is simply this, that Jesus Christ is the giver. Jesus Christ is the giver. If you possess, and all of you do, if you're in Christ, a spiritual gift, you are meant to employ it, and you did not originate it. It was given to you by Christ for the blessing of others. Jesus is the giver. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers. Again, I say, who bestows the gifts and causes the growth in God's church? It is not any one of us. It is Christ. Who has won the great victory over sin and death and the grave and now lives eternally and gloriously in power and authority as the loving leader and dispenser of all divine gifts? It is Jesus Christ himself. Again, the very first thing that Paul wants us to remember is that we need to understand That all true ministry comes to us in Christ, and through Christ, and ultimately for Christ. I say it so often, this is not about you, and this is not about me. Church is all about Jesus. All true Christian ministry originates from Jesus. It is empowered by the Spirit of Jesus, and it is aimed at the honor and exaltation of the Father of Jesus, God the Father. Now, helpfully, some of you may be uh, having the New International Version in front of you. There's all sorts of translations to Scripture. Uh, the NIV helpfully renders, verse 11, so Christ himself, as if some of us might have forgotten where it comes. It translates it or interprets it out for us a little bit. The New Living Translation, if you prefer, that one says, now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the ESV simply says, and he gave, pointing back to the antecedent in verses 7 and 8, speaking of Jesus Christ, who's the one who gives gifts to the church. But again, Paul's point could not be more clear. Jesus Christ is the giver of all gifts, and the enabler of all good works in and through his church, so that whatever we do, If we do anything at all, all that we do comes in the strength and in the power that Jesus alone provides. Therefore, friends, understand that Christ, if he's the giver, he is sovereign over the dispensation and distribution of these gifts. We don't get to put a requisition in saying, God, I'd like to have this particular gift or that. No, Jesus says, I will bless my church in these ways, and he is sovereign over that dispensation. Such that we could say that Jesus gives the gifts in order that he gets the glory. He empowers the people, therefore he receives the praise. As Paul puts it again back in Ephesians 4, 7, and 8, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Verse 11, and he gave. So you see the continuation of thought. Whatever your talent or gift is, it is not native to you. It comes from Jesus. So therefore, he's worthy of the thanks. Maybe think this week of Paul's words. Actually, Paul wrote four letters to the church in Corinth. Did you know that? Two of which are um, extant or existing for us. Perhaps 3 Corinthians is somewhere in 2 Corinthians. We don't know. That's a whole other class that we could talk about. But this was a highly contentious, often carnal church in Corinth. And remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 5 and following. He says, Who then is Apollos? See, the antidote to our division and our factions is a dose of humility, recognizing that nobody is all-important, and everybody is actually important. Jesus gives gifts to his church. Again, the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul says in Colossians 1, 17 and 18, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. If there's the end of a lesson, the end of a ministry, the end of a program, and you haven't passed on the praise to Jesus, you haven't finished the lesson. You haven't finished the program. Jesus is to get all the attention and all the glory, for He alone is the one who sent it for us. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who has gathered us through grace, and He has gifted us by grace. And that's the first point of our message this morning from Ephesians 4, verse 11. Jesus alone, Jesus sovereignly, Jesus graciously is the giver of every single gift in this family. And we have been blessed with many, many gifts in this family. So then, moving on, who, or perhaps you might say, what are these gifts that Jesus gives to His church? Well, I want you to notice that verse 11 continues by unwrapping the presents, these special gifts that God has graciously provided for the good and for the growth of His church. What do we find when we unwrap, take off the bow, the the package of Christ's gifts for the church? Well, Jesus tells us here, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds, and teachers. And we'll stop there. We'll come back in just a moment. Listen, this is not the only or even the first place where the apostle Paul seems to identify certain specific offices in association with the spiritual gifts that Christ gives to the church. Again, go over to 1 Corinthians, where Paul had a lot to say about a bunch of different matters organizing the church. In 1 Corinthians 12, verses 27 and following, notice what Paul says there. He says, again, now you are the body of Christ, and individually you are members of it. Verse 28, and he and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues, are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? You could hear Paul say. Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? And Paul's writing is given in such a way that the clear answer to each of these questions is, of course not. Not everyone gets all the gifts, but every gift is given. You see, Paul is saying that spiritual gifts and spiritual offices which work together enable and empower the church to do its work, the church to do its work, and they come at Christ's own prerogative. Jesus determines these things. He gives these things. He distributes these things. He's the one that appoints the offices, he's the one that assigns the gifts, and no one gets them all, and neither is anyone ever left out. If you're in Christ, let me belabor the point by saying there is something important for you to do. Something very important. So then what are we to make of these specific spiritual offices which are listed in Ephesians 4.11? This is not an unfamiliar text. Many of uh, you have heard messages About this passage before. Well, I want you to notice as you look at the text even on the screen behind me that there appear to be five terms given here. However, the actual grammar of the verse seems to indicate that there really are four Christ-appointed offices that Paul has in view. These are the particular leaders or offices whom Jesus gives for the good and growth of his church, namely first apostles. Secondly, prophets. Third, evangelists. And then fourth, shepherds hyphen teachers. Shepherds and teachers. I think those two terms are the two that go together, governed by the definite article, the, before it. Again, understand something that the first two offices, namely the apostles and the prophets, in my view, are no longer given to the church Today, So next time you scroll past that hokey website that says, Apostle so-and-so at this particular church, just keep on scrolling. These, these, uh, this office is no longer given to the church today. These two categories of Christian leaders were originally given by God to help establish the church in the first century, and maybe mostly to record the New Testament writings in the first century. We might say these were foundational offices given to establish the community of Christ. In this sense, Christ again no longer gives apostles and prophets to the church today. He most emphatically though uses those he did give and their testimony in the church today. Have you heard me preach from Paul before? (laughs) Yes, Any time we open our Bibles, we are being ministered to by these gifts of prophets and apostles, both in the Old and in the New Testaments. While we don't get new apostles and new prophets, we greatly benefit from the original ones, as that's the point I want to make. Just remember a few chapters earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, how Paul says in chapter 2 verse 19 of Ephesians, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built, notice, on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord. We might say that Jesus Christ alone is the foundation, the cornerstone and foundation. The apostles and prophets are the pillars of the church, and we are the building of the church now that's being built by God's grace. Again, Paul himself recognized that he was an apostle Of Christ Jesus. He actually begins most of his letters in the New Testament that way. Paul, an apostle of Christ by the will of God the Father. This apostle office was an authorized and officially authorized representative or spokesman for God, and I believe it was defined to a limited number of men in that first century. Even the book of Acts gives some qualifications that they had been with Jesus since his baptism, had seen him in his resurrection power, that they might authenticate the message that they would declare to others. Peter and James and John, names that you'll all be familiar with, as well as the other disciples who had left everything to follow Christ, who had witnessed his death and burial and resurrection, and then were commissioned to preach this good news and to establish churches by the power of the Holy Spirit in the first century, they were all given as big A apostles to the church. And they serve us in that way as we read their holy writings, as Second Peter 1.20 tells us in Scripture today. These important leaders, again, had personally seen Christ and his, the risen Christ. They had personally experienced fellowship. Remember 1 John 1, 1-4 fellowship with Jesus, and, and so they were uniquely given as, by Christ as pillars for the household of faith. They are not to be replaced, and they are no longer given to the church. This apostolic office specifically was discontinued with the death of that first century witness, the apostle John, as he wrote the last book of scripture, the book of Revelation. Likewise, the office of prophet. We've looked at the apostle. Now the office of prophet, at least in my view, also ended with the close of the New Testament. Remember that a prophet, of course, you could say is simply a mouthpiece of God. A mouthpiece of God. Thus saith the Lord is the very mantra and ministry of the prophet of God. And so as Peter says in Second Peter 1 verse 20 and 21 knowing this first of all that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Prophets are in view here. So the human authors of the New Testament, and as well as someone like the prophet Agabus that we read of uh, in Acts chapter 21, who came down from Judea with a special message uh, that Paul himself would, would be arrested in Jerusalem shortly to come. These, these uh, prophets seem to be in view here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. Christ gave these special offices, again the apostles and the prophets, to lay a foundation for the building of the church of faith. But these gifts ended with the close of the New Testament canon. Therefore, there is no new revelation. Sorry, Joseph Smith. Sorry, other heresies that have come. There is no new revelation, and we need to note that. But that leads to additional offices still here in Ephesians 4.11 to deal with. We believe these next two offices do continue to be given by a gracious uh, Savior in heaven that of the evangelists and the pastor teachers. Now, interesting, we don't focus a lot on this office of evangelist today. What we might actually call in our vernacular, I would submit to you, missionaries or church planters is what Paul has in view with this term evangelist. These were they who were specially endowed by Christ with the gift of conveying the content of the gospel both clearly and succinctly, particularly in places where the name of Christ was not yet known. Missionaries and church planters then are given by God to build up the church, and we might say to build up the church particularly numerically, to reach new people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. At the same time, I think it's important to stop and and state a bit of a caveat, a, a note for us to consider, that the, the term evangelist actually occurs only two other times in all the New Testament. Ephesians 4, 11, and then two other times. First, in Acts chapter 21, verse 8, it is applied to Philip. Philip the evangelist. This was the one and the same Philip that we've read about in Acts 6 and Acts 8 also, who was filled with the Spirit, who was set apart with Stephen and with the other deacons, we might say, to wait on tables so that the apostles could remain committed to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. He was, this Philip, was the same man who gently and accurately unpacked the mystery of Messiah from Isaiah 53 with that spiritually seeking Ethiopian eunuch. Philip evidently had the gift and held the office of evangelist in the early church. Likewise, the only other instance where this term is found is, interestingly, almost at the very end of Paul's writing, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5, where Timothy, a at least one time young pastor, maybe now maturing a little bit in his age, was admonished to do the work of an evangelist. Listen, every Christian is commanded to be involved in the work of evangelism. But some Christians, it appears to me, may be uniquely gifted, even today, to be evangelists who help to build up the church by reaching out to the lost. The late revivalist Billy Graham comes to mind. Who would not uh, support the fact that Billy Graham was an evangelist? Or perhaps the contemporary California crusade speaker Greg Laurie. Maybe you've heard his name. Or perhaps uh, Luis Palau, or maybe a younger man that some of you may not have heard of, Nick Hall, just to name a few. I actually came to faith in Christ through an evangelist by the name of Rick Gage, who used to be the, the head football coach at Liberty University when, before he left that uh, coaching for full-time evangelistic ministry. I traveled to Russia and the Ukraine with Rick Gage many, many years ago. I would submit to you even our Bible Fellowship Church church planters and many of those who serve as missionaries today, Tim and Jenny Good, Terry and Beth Wisser, Jordan and Amanda Eister, Amy Sant, John and Laura Studenroth, Matt and Christy Messick, and many, many others are missionaries, evangelists that God gives to the church today to gather and to grow his family. Let me repeat something so that you don't think you're off the evangelistic hook. Even if, and most of us aren't, even if you're not numbered among the evangelists whom Christ gives to His church today, you are still responsible to live out that great commission in some significant and special way. We are all witnesses to the resurrection of King Jesus. That's one big reason, let me give another commercial, why it would be awesome for many of you to be with me on Saturday, June the 4th, at our Sharing Your Faith workshop. Because it connects to the next point. It's my job to help you do your job. And so that's one reason we have trainings such as this. Well, the fourth and final office listed here in verse 11 is... The most familiar, I'm sure, to all of us, and that is the shepherd teacher, or what we might call today the pastor teacher, or maybe simply elders. If I haven't said it before, and I know that I have, you just maybe weren't listening, pastors are elders, and elders are pastors. When you see me as Pastor Dan, though I'm the lead pastor, I am no more important than any other elder that we have at this church We share common qualification and common responsibility in the work of the church. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ has gifted the church with pastor elders who teach and who lead and who oversee and even help to protect the flock of God. One favorite scholar, pastor of mine is John Stott who said once helpfully that nothing is more necessary for the building up of God's church in every age than an ample supply of God-gifted teachers. For it is teaching which builds up the church. Therefore, it is teachers who are needed most. Not most important, but they are needed most. We need teachers. To this point, Paul told Timothy again, himself a pastor-teacher in Ephesus, incidentally, In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, Paul says, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have been given. And then he said, In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 and following, Paul says, I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Here's your job description. Preach the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. elder, overseer office, along with the evangelist, missionary, church planter office, I believe are actively given by Jesus Christ, the head and source of all good gifts for the growth and development of the body of Christ, or you. Myself, and Pastor Jerry Brush, and Mark Crier, and Brian Graffy, and Brad Kunkel, and Cecil Salih, and Mark Stabilepsi, and Mark Vitasik, God has gifted these men to you, this church. Pray for us. Pray for us. Submit insofar as we are leading biblically, and God will bless. God will bless this church. I think of what Peter says, who Peter himself, an apostle, but also an elder of the church. He wrote in 1 Peter 5, verses 2 to 3, Shepherd the flock. Elders, listen to me right now, my fellow elders. We, we say this verse all the time at our elders' meetings. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. That is our, really our, our sole responsibility, but we shepherd in teaching and in prayer. But he says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Actions and attitudes, Paul, or excuse me, Peter displays beautifully in that text. So, again, before we need to move on, the offices of apostle and prophet, which came and went in the first century, along with the evangelists, church planners, missionaries, we might say, the pastor, teachers as well, are particular gifts, the particular gifts that Paul has in view in Ephesians 4, verse 11. It is these leaders whom Jesus has raised up to build you up in the church. And while they are fewer in number and specially appointed by the Savior, they are not more important than others or to be put up on a pedestal. Instead, these leaders are, to be ra- are raised up by Christ so that the laity, the members of the church, might be built up, equipped, and prepared to do their own important part for Christ and for the church. I said it earlier. It's really very true. It is my job to help you do your job. That is simply the, the most succinct way I could say what it is to be a pastor. There really isn't just one minister for the many, though some weeks it feels that way. Instead, there are the many who are called to be ministers one to the other. The work of ministry belongs to all God's saints, not just a select few of his saints. The work of God has been given to each one of us for the building up of Christ's body and for the furtherance of his glory. And when we sit on the sidelines, we all suffer. We all suffer. So just to recap before we close here, Christ, first point, is the giver. Second point, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers are the gifts. Thirdly, notice that maturity is the goal. Maturity is the goal. The ultimate goal of Christ's gifting in the church with leaders is for the body of Christ to become spiritually mature. Notice that entertainment isn't the goal. Or simply pacifying your needs for programs is not the goal, but it is spiritual maturity. That is the goal. Note the text again, Ephesians 4.11, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Again, Christ himself sovereignly gives the gifts. Leaders, particularly missionaries, church planners, and pastor teachers today are the gifts that Paul has in mind. And finally, the job is to equip every single saint to do their ministry, to do their part, to extend God's glory as one unified family. The purpose of those who lead is to serve. That is, to set an example, to speak the truth of Christ and His gospel to such an end as the saints of God are now unified, edified, matured, mobilized, and graciously protected. I think the Apostle Paul nails the goal of pastoral ministry for me. This is actually my pastoral philosophy verse, Colossians 1, verses 28 and 29, where Paul simply says, Him we proclaim. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. Doesn't get any clearer than that. For this I toil, Paul says in verse 29, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. Pastoral ministry in a single word. If you are an aspiring pastor in this congregation and there may be one or more here, It is about the church's maturity. It is not about your platform. It is about the platform of Christ being pressed into the life and lives of people in the congregation. The very word or verb to equip in verse 12 is a verb that means to prepare, to perfect, to complete or shape, even to make one what one ought to be. That is our purpose as pastors. To prepare you. For service. How weird and exhausting and utterly futile would it be to see one or two coaches out on the field trying to play a regulation game of baseball while 20 or 30 players sit idly on the bench as spectators? Just like Phillies baseball, it wouldn't be worth watching very much. <laughs> I wrote that before they went 3-0 and against the Dodgers, just so you know. Instead, the picture that Ephesians 4 paints is that of leaders coaching the members of the body of Christ so that they are out skillfully playing, participating in the positions that Christ has empowered them to play. Leaders are raised up so that members may be built up, schooled, and put in the right positions for service. So what does that look like quickly? Notice that Paul gives a positive word picture and a negative word picture to explain what this looks like in verses 13 and verse 14. Positively, he says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is what it ought to look like in the church if pastors and elders are doing their jobs people are maturing into Christ-likeness. They are taking on the characteristics of godliness and of Christ. They are doing what Christ commanded them to do. That's what it should look like. And by God's grace, I think that's what it does look like here at Trinity. But then negatively, notice in verse 14, Paul also gives another picture of what it should look like when pastors are faithfully equipping the church. Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human human cunning by craftiness in deceitful schemes there's really two words that should stand out in verse 13 and verse 14 they are the words mature and the words and the word infants the positive picture is that of maturity the negative picture is that of toddlers or children In the church. What does a healthy church ministry look like? Well, Paul says it looks more like a training ground for mature soldiers than it does a toddler nursery for immature infants. What is more true of our church? As much as we love the nursery, Kim, we aren't to look like a nursery, folks, as believers. We are to be a training ground for mature people. Again, ministry, or excuse me, maturity is the positive mental picture here and immaturity is the negative picture. So again, when grace-given godly leaders fail to impart the maturity inducing milk and meat of God's word in the church, it remains a playroom of spiritual infants and toddlers who demand their own way and fight and bicker who are easily distracted and easily manipulated by false teaching, and eventually they are destroyed by the devil's devilish schemes. The need then for growing up in the faith by digging deeper into solid milk and meat of teaching in God's Word is reinforced by the Apostle Paul. And for the sake of time, I won't read this passage, but I encourage you to go and look up Acts chapter 20, verses 26 through 32 sometime this afternoon. There, Paul gives just an incredible illustration of what uh, godly eldership is all about. Well, look, God's vision is for the church to grow up into maturity, to reflect the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that is, Jesus' goodness, His graciousness, even His own godliness and truth, by taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5 by being rooted and grounded in the very love of Christ, Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7, in order that when the waves and winds of doubt and discouragement come and buffet us, we are not knocked over, that we might not be seduced, pardon me here, by the skinny jean-wearing, spotlight-loving, pop Christianity of our day. You know you'll never see me in skinny jeans, but for other reasons. And finally, that we might not, be, uh, might not buy into the lies of Satan which try to get us to forsake the cross instead of taking up our crosses to follow Jesus. So Jesus Christ has raised up leaders so that members might be built up and finally that the church might grow up. Just look quickly at verses 15 and 16. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint, and I think by every joint here specifically refers to the evangelists and the pastor teachers, particularly though everyone as you employ your gifts by being taught uh, help which, with which it is equipped and each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What a beautiful picture this passage paints. Someone has said that when, that we seem to have forgotten that the church is not to be a spiritual rest home, but rather a barracks for training soldiers of the cross. D.L. Moody said, It is better to put ten men to work than to do the work of ten men. And that is a temptation in pastoral ministry, just simply to do it yourself rather than to equip and delegate God's work To God's chosen ones. If Christ is sovereign over his assignments, and if leaders are specially appointed not to be idolized, but rather to work hard to equip you for your work, and if every saint is meant to be employed in the ministry of God's household, and the goal of all of this is actually the maturity of God's people, then speaking the truth in love, as Ephesians 4, 15 notes, And building ourselves up in love is the methodology. It is the how that we do it. It's how all this works out. It's been pointed out, perhaps by others before, that there is no word for speaking here in verse 15. Rather, the text simply says, rather, truthing in love. And I love that. It makes for poor English, but terrific practical theology. It says, rather, truthing in love, because it's not mere speaking. Pastors and elders, we equip with our lips, but we also should equip with our lives. That is through our example as well. 1 John 3.18, John says, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Well, friends, what if? What if? the presence and power of the love of Christ Jesus truly permeated our lives, truly was manifest in our ministry, truly flows through our fellowship, what would we see? I think we would see the church dynamically growing. And I'm so encouraged that I do see growth, but are we dynamically growing? Are we growing to our fullest, being stretched out to the measure of Christ? I think we have some headroom yet to grow, Are we that kind of church? Do we have 230 people sitting in the stands desperately in need of exercise, watching 22 people on the field of ministry desperately in need of rest? Again, I don't think so. I really do believe we have a maturing church. But I think there are those among us who aren't nearly as mature as you ought to be by this point in your spiritual walk. And I think I need to say that. Sometimes we get complacent, we get stagnant, and it is the work of pastors and elders to agitate you on to holiness. May you be agitated for his glory, not settling to be uh, swept back uh, with the tides of our culture, but straining forward. Paul says, forgetting what lies behind, but straining toward what lies ahead. I press on, and he said that right before his death. We are not finished yet, but He's working among us and we should be encouraged in that. Would you bow with me as we close? Again, O oh, gracious Father, we we thank You for this challenge this morning. And as a pastor teacher, I've been in the crosshairs of Your Holy Spirit and your, your work all week long. I know how often there are... Uh, days and instances that that I don't rise to this expectation. So, Lord, I I plead your grace and forgiveness and ask for further unction to continue doing what you've called me and designed me to do, and likewise for my fellow elders. But I also see, Lord, that there is a a deeper depth beyond the, the pastor to the members of the church. And I pray, Lord, that that your church this morning has not felt a tongue lashing, but rather they feel that they have been loved in truth, that they would rise, Lord, to your admonition to be equipped to do their work in the church. Thank you, Father, for the faithful heritage of men and women at Trinity Bible Fellowship Church who have been equipped and who have served well. Many are tired, Lord. Would you refresh them? Would you strengthen them? And would you bring in the reinforcements for them? Lord, help us to become what you have ordained us to be. All for your glory. And we'd give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.